0: Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Public schools in Texas that educated black and ethnic Mexican students throughout much of the 20th century received subpar funding, secondhand books, and few opportunities to seek higher education. Some school districts, however, knew the community they served and stepped up to serve them. Dr. Jesus Jesse Esparza is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Geography at Texas Southern University in Houston. His forthcoming book is Raza Schools, The Fight for Latino Educational Autonomy in a West Texas Borderlands Town. It examines the little-known story of the San Felipe Independent School District in Del Rio. The district got its start as the San Felipe Common School District in 1894. Esparza talks about how he learned about the Mexican-American Barrio of San Felipe and how it carved out a page of Texas history.
1: When I first enrolled in the graduate program at the University of Houston, you know, I was in a PhD program and you have to do a dissertation. I said, so I'm going to do the walkouts. I was fascinated by the student movements in Texas, thousands of students walking out of schools to protest all kinds of forms of oppression. So I wanted to do the walkouts and I met with who would become my advisor. I met with uh, Lupe San Miguel, Guadalupe San Miguel. And one of the first things that he said to me very sort of clearly, he says, that's been done to death, <laughs> right? Everyone has written about that. There are countless articles and books, and now there's movies and films coming out. He says, that's been done. Let's try to explore topics. As historians, we try to explore topics that not many people know about yet, things that are in development. And so it was he who recommended that I switch gears a bit, stay within the field of educational activism, but switch gears a bit and consider looking at a school district in West Texas, in Del Rio, Texas, of all places. And he said that there was something there that not many people know about. And that's how it came to be. Lupe San Miguel had a student maybe five or six or seven years prior to me also do research. He was sort of exploring the early court case, the Jesus San court case of the 1930s. And in doing so, he sort of kind of learned about this other school district, the San Felipe School District and wrote a wonderful dissertation. That was sort of my first formal introduction into the school district. I didn't know it then, and I know it now, but as historians, you kind of have to look to see where the gaps are, where the void is, where you need to go to do the research to fill in the gap. And Samuel saw that then when I first met him and says, you need to go here because this is where we need the information. And so I went there, wrote a dissertation. It was a kind of so so dissertation, but then I transformed that dissertation into this manuscript, which is receiving uh, some buzz and some critical acclaim. That's how I came into this project. My advisor pointed me in the direction. And it just happened to be that my then fiance, my now wife, has roots in that community. And so when we moved there, we were living with family and kin. And, you know, I was in Mexico every other weekend. And I loved living in Del Rio. I was there for about two and a half years doing research.
0: So tell us a little bit about the barrio of San Felipe.
1: San Felipe is it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, neighborhood in the city of Del Rio. Del Rio was incorporated officially in 1901. But people have lived there prior to that, dating all the way back to the mid-1800s. And a lot of these persons would, these are sort of these travelers who would come north from Mexico, and these would be the persons who would be responsible for establishing some of the earliest institutions in that community. A lot of these persons would hail from the same region in Mexico oftentimes, so that they were bound by sort of these familial and ideological, political, and even religious ties. And the mutual support that existed as it were in Mexico, then came to serve them well, when they came north and came into this community, uh, which they found oftentimes as a very hostile environment. And so subsequently, they would then form the social clubs, the political organizations, uh, uh, the religious institutions, businesses, businesses galore, I mean, it became a very sort of self sustaining uh, neighborhood, there was uh, businesses, perhaps on every other block, as one of the persons that were interviewed for this project has indicated, and they would form also some of the earliest schools in the community, escuelitas at first, sort of these Spanish-speaking schools that taught literacy and math, and but that also taught cultural heritage, pride of of lo mexicano, if you will, and and then from there, this community would then take advantage of other educational opportunities like religious schools than the public school systems, and so on. And so that's what this community is. It's an entrenched community, an old community that became very self-sufficient, very autonomous, that was bustling with businesses, entrepreneurs, educators, politicians, and so on and so on. And they were doing this since the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, all the way through the decades following.
0: That just kind of goes to show the importance that this community placed on education. You talked about escuelitas, which are, you know, a program all on their own. They are sort of these privately run little institutions. Sometimes parents would be the instructors in these uh, schools. They almost offered sort of a Mexican-American studies to their students. You know, they were learning about Mexican history, they were learning about Mexican literature, and they were being taught in Spanish, something that was obviously forbidden in these Anglo schools. So there was a really heavy importance on education in this community. And I thought it was really fascinating to see that San Felipe actually established a school district there in the
1: 1890s. They did. So one of the things that happens is the city of De Rio sits in a county known as Valverde, Valverde County. And county officials operated schools. They operated several schools there, and, and several schools existed within the Mexican-American neighborhood, the San Felipe community. That existed for several years. And then in 1928, 1929, the residents of San Felipe opted to incorporate. That is to say that they didn't want to attend or have their children attend county schools they wanted to incorporate and form their own independent school district they technically did that in 1929 they filed for that earlier but they got it in 1929 and they formed what is believed to be the only school system in texas ever organized by mexican americans a school system that they controlled from top to bottom and organized right at the height of jim crow no less that is to say in a time and in a period where these kinds of things did not happen across the state because of racism, bigoted laws. And here, these Mexican-Americans are doing this in a West Texas borderlands community, and they managed this district to about 71. This was perhaps the first and only Mexican-American controlled school district in the history of Texas. Now, perhaps this is the tip of the iceberg, and others are going to find similar schools and districts existing elsewhere, but... As far as we can tell, this is a -a one-of-a-kind school district in Texas that we know of.
0: But because it was located in a predominantly Mexican-American and impoverished community, it must have made it very difficult for it to compete with the Del Rio Independent School District, Majority Anglo, and obviously with a better tax base. So can you talk a little bit about those financial issues that sort of resulted from this physical segregation by the San Felipe Creek that essentially split both sides of the community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the city of DeRio, right, like many cities in the state of Texas during this period, sort of developed with strict segregation as laws, an embodiment of the Deep South and, and the practices and the customs of the Deep South. And so certainly the city was crafted and designed in a way where people were separated across the color line, if you will, and there was natural boundaries that sometimes helped shape that, like the creek that would separate the town into an east and west. And so one side of town was the uh, mostly affluent side of town. And it was a community that, that housed the largest number of Anglo-Americans. And there was also a sizable number of, of Mexican-Americans and African-Americans who lived there. But they lived in the segregated section of that side of town and attended segregated schools in that district and so on and so on. And then on the other side of the creek, on the east side of the creek, is where you would have San Felipe, this community, uh, that in many ways was developed because of segregationist policies, but also in many ways was developed because it attracted people to those communities. And many persons coming into the city, either from Mexico or from other parts of the state or the other nation would come to San Felipe and find safety there, security there, safety in numbers, and would be attracted by the opportunity to become an entrepreneur. I mean, there were newspaper printing shops and bookstores and grocery stores, and there was all kinds of business opportunities. But the city was historically segregated, and segregated not just across color line, but segregated too and separated in terms of the way wealth was distributed. San Felipe, while self-sufficient and economically self-sufficient, was a working-class community and struggled, oftentimes, to meet payroll of teachers, especially in the 1930s, with the onset of the depression, and it didn't have the same tax base and the tax revenue generated that the other side of town would. And so comparatively, the real ISD was larger, more affluent, and well-established. And San Felipe was working class, struggling, but, you know, making it happen. I mean, they maintained it, and they managed, and they financed these schools 42 years. Yeah, and so there is economic disparity. A lot of that could be explained also by the way school districts were funded. Uh, And a lot of the funding for colored students, I include Mexican-Americans in in the term colored, was inherently racist. That is to say that states often did not provide the same number of dollars that they did for Mexican-American students than they did for white students. And the same could be said about their classroom facilities, uh, Mexican-American students facilities historically everywhere else. attended schools where buildings were poorly built, they were poorly kept, they were neglected, they were overcrowded, they were run down, they lacked restrooms, and they lacked libraries, they sometimes didn't have cafeterias, they would have to be sent home to eat lunch and then come back. And this is what I mean by sort of this funding being inherently racist. And, And that was the case, but also not the case in San Felipe. San Felipe tried to erase and circumvent some of those things. And so the funding was not the same. And in fact these districts would often compete for funding and where they would compete with each other over territory and over students and, and it's actually the competition over funding and many other factors that eventually forces these two districts to merge in the early nineteen seventies, creating a new sort of host of problems for both districts.
0: Jesus Jesse Esparza is an assistant professor of history at Texas Southern University in Houston. He's the author of Raza Schools, the fight for Latino educational autonomy in a West Texas borderlands town. When we come back, teachers in the San Felipe ISD drew on their heritage to teach students in Spanish and better communicate with their parents.
1: There wasn't this sort of criminalization of the use of Spanish as it might have existed in HISD in Houston. It was different in San Felipe and oftentimes encouraged in many ways to help students excel beyond expectations.
0: Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. San Felipe ISD in Del Rio was established by Mexican-Americans and taught Mexican-American students with staff and administrators who were also Mexican-Americans. A slew of potential new students and by default potential new funding for a struggling district were promised by the opening of Laughlin Air Force Base in the 1950s. The children on base were instead sent to the majority white Del Rio district. A federal judge found that to be discrimination. The districts were eventually consolidated and much of the history of San Felipe was lost. That history included allowing the use of Spanish in classrooms by students and instructors, a practice that was illegal in Texas. Jesus Jesse Esparza is a history professor at Texas Southern University. He writes about the San Felipe School District in the forthcoming book, Raza Schools, the fight for Latino educational autonomy in a West Texas borderlands town. He says San Felipe schools were not immune from pressure to focus on English-only instruction, but they were still outliers.
1: You know, one of the things that I tried to stress in the book was that Spanish was not disparaged or was never criminalized. There was a sense to an urgency to learn English, to teach English to those whose primary language was something else, in this case, Spanish. But again, right, using Spanish was not criminalized. And oftentimes Spanish was, students were learned to, you know, encouraged to learn in Spanish uh, as a way to help them learn better in English as well. And so this is already the way dual language programs exist today. That's happening. Early on in San Felipe, that's happening in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, many of the teachers who worked for these districts, almost most of them were Mexican-American, and many of them were from that community, either from other Mexican-American communities or they were from that community because that district had sort of established a real strong pipeline of growing its own teachers, sending them off to college and bringing them back and hiring them to come and work in the classrooms that they once sat in as students. But many of these teachers uh, were from there, and they knew the students, they knew the language and the culture and the heritage of students, and they spoke to the parents of students. And oftentimes, they spoke to parents in the language that parents knew the best. And so there wasn't this sort of criminalization of the use of Spanish as it might have existed in HISD in Houston. It was different in San Felipe, and oftentimes encouraged in many ways to help students excel beyond expectations. And these students were not just graduating at consistent rates. They were also then enrolling into institutions of higher learning. They're attending schools in San Marcos, in Austin, in San Antonio, and they are going and getting degrees. Whatever they they were doing in that classroom, it seemed to be working. And, And in many ways, right, students did not feel ashamed and embarrassed and were not confronted by hostile teachers. They were confronted by teachers who knew them, who understood them, and who demanded of them academic excellence, and then prepared them for the rigors to withstand the college education and then beyond. And, and in doing so, that also provides them with the skills to sort of survive in a hostile environment. And so this is what this school was doing. The school was sort of doing more than they needed to and sort of really working beyond the classroom as well. The, yeah, these students were graduating at consistent rates and the numbers, while they fluctuated from year to year they were steadily growing. They were steadily growing and they were showing signs of not slowing down. I mean, uh, the first graduating class took place in 1932. They had like seven graduates. And then in 1969, they had 100 graduates. And so the school district was also very, very small, but the number of graduates was growing year to year. And, And, you know, for like the last three decades of the school's existence, most of those were were female graduates. San Felipe was producing a great number of female graduates who then were attending institutions of higher learning. And they were doing this at a time again in Texas where most Mexican Americans don't go past the seventh, eighth grade, or they attend segregated high schools, or they then don't finish high school because they're either arbitrarily suspended or expelled. Or as we get closer to the sixties, they're drafted into Vietnam and things of that nature. And here San Felipe is graduating students at consistent rates. And then most of them would be women. This is, again, sort of setting different patterns within the public school systems of Texas.
0: Well, you mentioned earlier sort of the consolidation of the San Felipe and the Del Rio school districts. Can you give us a little bit of a background as to why that happened?
1: In 1971, a federal court is going to order San Felipe ISD to merge, to consolidate with the neighboring Del Rio ISD, both of those, as we know, provided school services for the children of the city. And it did that because uh, in the 1970s, there's sort of this new movement that has reemerged to forcibly and to officially integrate segregated school systems. So I'll back up just a bit. In 1948, in the Mendez case, in 1949, in the Delgado case, 47 Mendez, 48, 49 Delgado here in Texas, um, and then the Brown case in 54, Those are those court cases that are going to destroy racial segregation in schools in California with the Mendez case, in Texas with the Delgado case, and then nationwide with the Brown case. And so those are the lawsuits that says school districts can no longer segregate ever. But what happens is from that period, the school districts find ways to either circumvent the order to not follow it, or they find ways to stall integrating or, you know, they foot drag, and they delay orders, and they come up with ways to try to achieve integration, but not really achieving integration. Like, for example, many school districts would often put Chicano and black students in one school, and then call Chicano Caucasians and say, well, that's integration there. And then they would leave the wealthier white schools sort of untouched. And that's how they would sort of achieve integration. And this is what school districts were doing. And so by the 1970s, activists you know, MALDEF and them and other groups. And and certainly the federal court get involved and it says, you are not doing what you're supposed to do. You have stalled and foot dragged long enough. Now we're going to make you integrate. And so this impacts on Felipe ISD in very significant ways because the district in its very existence alone is like 97, 98% Mexican American. They have black students who attended who were integrated prior to 54 and then were integrated after 54. And so they have a small number of white students and black students, but it's overwhelmingly Mexican-Americans, like 98% Mexican-American. Del Rio ISD, on the other hand, was also overwhelmingly white in that they were at least 60% of the student population. And so in their very existence alone, their very sort of demographic and ethno-racial makeup, they were segregated facilities. And so the district court saw this and says, well, you know what, you're going to have to integrate to achieve a proper ratio of all the students in that city And do so in a way where you are no longer segregated institutions. And so this is what the courts decided to do and what the courts needed to do to achieve integration. Now, the story behind that, though, is prior to this ruling, there was already conflict and problem brewing between San Felipe ISD and Del ISD over acquiring students. Uh, And so there was this fight between both districts over who was going to acquire these students from Laughlin Air Force Base. Technically, those students needed to come to San Felipe ISD because the base sat within the boundaries of San Felipe. But because of some kind of prior agreement between district leaders in the 1950s, uh, San Felipe leadership in the 1950s agreed to let Del Rio absorb those kids uh, to house them, to feed them, to educate them, because San Felipe was small and in didn't have the space and it couldn't build fast enough. And there was several reasons for why that happened. And then the new leadership comes in the 1960s and they discovered this plan to sort of transfer agreement. And the superintendent, Homer C. he puts an end to it. He said, no, absolutely not, because he knew what his predecessor didn't know. He knew that there are extra monies that come with students whose parents are connected to the military. They're known as impact funds. And so the federal government sends more dollars to the district to house those kids, that is to educate them, to feed them, and so on and so on. And so there was a problem that was generated in the 1960s between both districts when the leadership in San Felipe says, guess what? This transfer agreement is done. We don't know why it happened. We don't care why it happened, but it's not happening anymore. These students belong to our district. They're coming to our district. End of it. They were meeting with politicians they were meeting with judges they were meeting with lawyers they were meeting with commissioners from uh, the commission of civil rights and trying to argue well who has rights to these kids it ended up that san felipe was going to get these kids that they were going to in turn end this transfer agreement absorb these kids and del rio was left kind of holding the bill they had built new facilities expecting to absorb 700 to 800 new pupils and now they weren't getting them. And so it was really Del Rio who reached out to the federal courts to say, hey, can you consolidate us? We'd rather consolidate with our old school rival than to lose these kids and the millions of dollars of federal impact funds that comes with them. And that's what really sort of started this consolidation movement. Del Rio didn't want to lose those students. They said, we'd rather consolidate and let's consolidate. And it was supposed to be an equal merger, but it fell short of that. There was not an equal merger, this consolidation.
0: Despite all its good intentions, integration doesn't necessarily bode well for many communities. I know in many parts of Texas, there were many black schools that graduated. So many successful graduates, integration sort of broke up that practice. And many black students who found themselves in now majority white schools found themselves bullied and found their their schoolwork suffering. Did you find sort of a similar situation when Del Rio and San Felipe districts merged?
1: I did. Integration had the reverse effect on the students from San Felipe because they were no longer attending schools in their community, in this insular community where they were protected, where they were nourished, where they were challenged they now found themselves going to schools where they were confronted by hostile teachers, where they were not encouraged to apply to colleges and universities, but perhaps now were encouraged to enter into the armed forces. And I'm not making any disparaging remarks about the armed forces. What I'm saying is that could not be the only option that's being offered to this population, but it was. And certainly students uh, struggled with the merger. And I, I use the word merger loosely. They became unruly. I mean, in the first few days and weeks and months, there were physical confrontations among the student population. And teachers were also sort of moved throughout the city in a way that tried to achieve sort of the 60-40 ratio. Not just students had to achieve that ratio, but faculty uh, and administrators had to achieve that as well. Students were often uh, very hostile to Mexican-American faculty and administrators. And they begin to fight over student funding over the most appropriate curriculum over jobs and positions and uh and there's all kinds of internalized problems that emerge as a result of integration and integration in this case takes the schools away from mexican americans i mean and this is unique because if you look at the history of integrationism across the state and nation mexican americans are integrationists. Mexican Americans are trying to destroy segregation everywhere it existed. The first known court case to try to destroy segregation in Texas happens in Del Rio in 1930, the Jesus Salatierra case. You know, and from then, right, Mexican Americans have been trying to destroy it. Uh the League of United Latin American Citizens, and then the American GI Forum, and then the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education, and so on and so on. You know, everywhere they're looking to integrate and to use integration as a way to equalize education. In San Felipe, they wanted to stay insular, right? They wanted to stay separate, and they didn't want to integrate. And this is a very sort of unique look at what integration does and doesn't do to a community that found itself protected and insulated and nourished by teachers who were like them, looked like them, and who encouraged them and and expected out of them this rigor and so on and so on. And so, yeah, it, it, it becomes problematic efforts to try to end the violence, you get law enforcement involved, you get the religious community involved to try to sort of serve as therapist, if you will, to students who had issues. But there's other problems. I mean, one of the things that the, the real leadership did in the first few weeks of consolidation was that they tried to sort of systematically erase the history and the memory and the identity of San Felipe ISD. And that is, they removed signs, they changed the names of some of the schools in that community, they ordered a lot of the memorabilia in these buildings to be removed to be thrown out i mean yearbooks and trophies and all kinds of memorabilia that existed there they demote buildings like the high school in san felipe for example that school was built in 1930 and was the most prized institution for that community and then in 71 it becomes a ninth grade campus a ninth grade campus only and the principal who was assigned there was an Anglo real isd who had grown bitter With his reassignment, he wanted to remain as the principal at Del Real High. And he sort of led this campaign to really try to destroy this history. And I mean, he just ordered everything to be taken out and thrown away. uh, And there was no warning. And, And it really caused an uproar in the community. And so this is what the district leadership was doing. And then moving forward, they would then also try to remove physical structures from the district. Like, for example, they would demolish the auditorium that was built in the 40s and through the 50s. That, as the people describe it, that is an artifact of history itself. I mean, it was this beautiful auditorium that they had built, and it served, at, in many ways, as a museum. And they destroyed it, and in its place is a parking lot, and they were trying to remove the football stadium. They call it the memorial stadium that they built in the 40s and 50s to honor veterans of the Second World War. They demolished that as well, and so there were all kinds of problems that existed in the classroom, outside the classroom, and then uh, throughout the community as a result of consolidation.
0: Dr. Jesus Jesse Esparza is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Geography at Texas Southern University in Houston. He's the author of the forthcoming book Raza Schools, the fight for Latino educational autonomy in a West Texas borderlands town. Its publication date is September 19th. Thanks for joining us for Fronteras. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marian Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Cheranga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at TPR.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.